Hello and welcome to Can I Get a Picture? I'm your host, Soul Love More. Join me as I get to pick the brains of some extraordinary people, hearing their struggles and successes that have shaped who they are today. Today we're talking to Dr. Tessa Hartman, CBE, a Jersey-based entrepreneur and the founder of Hartman House. She pioneered the Scottish Fashion Awards and received the CBE for her contribution to fashion and textiles in 2016. I met Tessa through her daughter, who's a great friend of mine. Tessa is a trailblazer who's redefining what our world could look like with more women in charge. She's a proud Scot and the definition of an eternal hustler. I hope you enjoy our conversation filled with being a woman in business, hustle and the importance of hard work. Thanks for coming on, Tessa. Glad to be here. I was thinking about the first time we actually met, and I think the first time I properly met you was your birthday at Tramp. I think that's the first time we've been introduced. That was a good night. <laughs> yeah, and thank you for not seeing how old I was on that set. That was your t- we'll go. That was your twenty fifth birthday. It's all good. We'll call it your twenty fifth. Yes. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. So, but yeah, no, it was. Um, it was a great night. Yeah, an amazing night, and thank you, obviously, for for having me. It was a great experience, just to kind of be. And I know you guys are huge on family, which is why I think me and um, Tessie have always been such great friends because she's super about family, and I'm exactly the same. You know, her world revolves around her family, and for me, that just you know is the foundation of everything we do in life. It is, and I think also. Um, coming from a Glaswegian background like myself and then my husband as you know is kind of a bit of German a bit of Italian the Italians are big on family so that's just the way I was brought up fortunately it's the way he's brought up I'm probably a bit over the top with the kids but it's nice to hear it from someone like you who who says that she feels the same way because you try and install that as a parent but you don't you don't often know if you if you hit the mark, but certainly if the one thing COVID's taught us over these last few months is how valuable that has been just being all together and especially having her cooking. She's the most phenomenal cook. She's gone back to London now, so we're all going to starve. <laughs> yeah, I see this, this new trend, hashtag Chef Tess. Chef so, Tess, I mean... she's so good, so good. The only thing is when people say to her, Tessie, why are you such a good cook? She said, well, you know, I've been cooking for years and in my house, if I didn't cook, we wouldn't get fed. <laughs> I said, thank you so much. I will take that with a pinch of salt. <laughs> you know, working mom, you can't have it all. Can't be good at everything as I tell her. <laughs> Yeah, true. That's exactly. That's one of the things I really wanted to get you on is because your achievements, I mean, speak for themselves and we'll delve into that. But the fact that you've managed to raise your kids, build a family and have an exceptional career, you know, because one of the the themes I hear is always, oh, you can't have both. You can't have, you know, for women, especially they say, oh, you can't have a family and have a great career. You kind of have to pick either or. But I think you've almost rewritten the the script really well you know I've always I always wanted to have it all but I think the reality is people need to be honest I don't think you can have it all I think you have to define what your all means to you um I I always call my business my first baby because um I always dreamed of uh, having one business I you know worked in London, worked all over the world. But, you know, at some point I came from a big family and I knew I always wanted to have children and I thought, yeah, I'll be able to manage it. But the reality is what people don't see is the sacrifices that you have to make to make it work and the things you have to do to raise your kids and work full time. And I think it's a challenge for anyone. I think now 
we're living in a society where it becomes more acceptable to talk about the, the stresses and the challenges that women have. But equally, um, we live in such an amazing time with technology has allowed me to to be able to do that. You know, my mother's generation couldn't have done that. They couldn't have managed. I mean, I, I mean, God, I've lost count how many times I've done conference calls and holding a baby and trying to sugar her to sleep in a bottle in and pretended I was in my office and the lies I told not to let anyone know that I was actually at home breastfeeding or feeding or something. I mean, that's just what you do. It's a roller coaster, but it's it's worth every second. I wanted to start firstly by going right back to early life. So tell me a bit about your childhood, what early life was like for you. My mum and dad were my best friends. Unfortunately, they're no longer with me now. I was the youngest of five. And um, my parents were uh, very came from very humble beginning, very poor background um, in Govan and Glasgow. Uh, not not in the nicest of areas, but certainly if it wasn't for Govan, I wouldn't be here. So I'm I'm kind of proud of it. And um, my father um, was a young man. He was a plumber. He worked on the shipyards, and um, he got a break um, in a steel stock holding firm when he was a young man. And uh, I always remember my mum lived on the other side of of Glasgow, about twenty miles away. And he always used to tell us the tale about when he used to take her on a date. They met when they were eighteen. Uh, he was 19, um, that he could afford the bus fare to take her, but he couldn't ever afford the bus fare to get home. So, oh, And he never had the courage to tell her that he had to walk for hours and hours and hours to get home, um, which I love. Um, but he got an opportunity to work as a train as a draftsman in a steel company. And um, he did that for a while. Uh, and then he progressed up through the ranks. And then all of a sudden, well, I say all of a sudden after, I think they were on their third child, um, he decided with a friend of his that they could actually try and do this themselves and, and try and stock steel um, themselves. So they kind of got a bank loan for a small warehouse um, and started importing steel and selling it. You know, he's just got such an incredible legacy. Um, he built this phenomenal business, you know, went out on his own with his partner. Um, and then the partner left about after four years and he carried on and he grew the company to be a hugely successful um, importer and exporter of stainless steel tubes. So they were building oil rigs, shipyards, pipelines, gas lines, you know, all over the world. And I think it's because I always like to think that our Scottish temperament and our Scottish hunger and perhaps even our accent and because you live outside the bubble of London um, that you have to punch a bit harder and work a bit harder um, because you don't have the same opportunities that you do in the big cities um, and he was just fiercely ambitious um, but you know he always said that you know the hours he had to put in and the travel he probably did miss a lot of um, my elder siblings time growing up um, and I came along very late um, and he was just for me he was my mentor you know he he taught me that you could do anything you want if you put your mind to it and for some reason when I was at school I was always very um, interested in the arts but I could never draw myself and I was always very jealous of people that were creative and could draw and artists I was fascinated by them and I was very much interested in fashion and I, I finished school and at the time actually I was uh, going at weekends to the Royal Academy of Music and Drama to do like speech and drama and acting and everything and I got grades to get into university which was quite a surprise for me because you know I was probably, it's fair to say, more of a socializer than I was an academic. But I surprised myself and got great grades, 
I thought, great, everyone was shocked. Um, apart from my dad, he said, ah, I knew you'd do it. Uh, but anyway, I went to university. I studied uh, in Stirling. Um, I studied business, law and marketing and became fascinated with um, American advertising and, you know, and big brands. And my dad always said to me that, you know, you have to make your own path and you the only way to succeed in life is to experience everything um, and celebrate failure. You know, he was a big, you know, big, uh, his rationale for everything was it doesn't matter how many times you fail because one time you will make it. Anyway, over that, the I think it was the third summer at university, I volunteered to work with the Kennedy Foundation that were having their Special Olympic Games in Glasgow, would you believe, many moons ago. And I volunteered as a runner, so basically a gopher. And I, I was there about two weeks over the summer holidays and I was photocopying, doing do not, do not runs, you name it. I was just a gopher for the American team. But I was I was fascinated by them because you know, it was run by the Kennedy family, which was phenomenal. Um, and at the time, like on the board was like Arnold Schwarzenegger and all these people. Anyway, as luck would have it, the chap who was heading the PR department in Glasgow for the games took ill. And I was I was literally, I think I was actually picking up, this is a true story, a set of Carmen rollers for Eunice Kennedy Shriver who was the president and I took them to her room and she said to me, it's on a Sunday in Glasgow. You can imagine trying to find a set of Carmen rollers on a Sunday in Glasgow 25 years ago. Uh, I stole them from my mum, being ever resourceful that I could deliver. And um, she said, look, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm at university. I'm studying marketing and business law. And she said, look, we need someone else to work in that office. Um, Turn up tomorrow morning at eight o'clock and you're going to meet our head of marketing. So this lady called Victoria Patton. Anyway, I turned up the next day and uh, I literally became her assistant for the rest of the summer. And she was organising the opening ceremony, all the VIP arrivals. Uh, I mean, it was full on, you know, 7am in the morning till whatever time you just worked till the job got done. But overnight, you know, a girl from Glasgow, I was thrust into this world of, you know, a major global event by major celebrities. Um, I was sent to pick up Prince Albert arriving in his private jet in Glasgow airport and it was just overwhelming for me but one of the things I was so impressed by was the American attitude and their organization and their can-do approach you know we really can't underestimate that and that that predictable American dream that they talk about um they really do believe that because they don't stop um and so this gave me this overwhelming urge to to get into more of that field of event planning and and big brand marketing. Um, So I went back to university to do my final year in the October and the lady called me up again. She said, look, we're doing the World Games in Minneapolis the following summer. Would you like to come and uh, live in Washington with us for three three and a half months, work with me on putting together the final touches to the games? I was like, wow, you know, uh, amazing. So I went out to Washington, D.C., um, which is interesting given what's happening in the world now to see all that. Um, and I worked in the, the Kennedy Foundation headquarters, which was in Philadelphia Avenue overlooking the White House. And by goodness, you know, if I thought the work ethic was strong in Glasgow, it was unbelievable there. They were at their desks from 6.30 a.m. And But that for me was an awakening an awakening to see the size and the scope of their dreams, their ambitions, and how they just worked hard to deliver. And also, um, it was a very early entry to 
the mechanics of big branding and how all these big brands supported this and the Coca-Colas and the McDonald's and, you know, the airlines and and how they had built such a strong brand. Um, so I was supposed to come back after that summer. I'd graduated and I was supposed to start working at a stockbroker's in London, would you believe? And I'd applied through the sort of graduate recruitment scheme. And I can't remember. It was obviously the Monday. And I got a call on the Sunday uh, in London. I'd moved down to London, was sharing a room with a pal of mine. And it was this lady from uh, Washington. She said, look, we are giving our ad and marketing account to an agency in London to handle Europe. Because you've now worked on two games, would you like to go for an interview? But you'd have to go tomorrow. I was like, God, I mean, I would like nothing more, but I start my new job tomorrow. And she went, well, I really think you should go for this job because we, we really would love you to get it. I can't promise you're going to get it, but we'd love you to get it. So I'm sitting in London thinking, how the hell do I phone up my mum and dad and go, I'm not starting my new job in London. And if I don't turn up, I'll probably get sacked before I'm even hired. Um, and I went for a new job and I thought, fuck it, I'm going to do it. So I went, I didn't tell anyone. I went to this interview they offered me the job on the spot literally because I had experienced two full games. And that was the start of my career. I worked in this fantastic um, agency. Uh, it, funny enough, it was owned by an American uh, in London for several years. Um, and the, that's where I learned my trade. And, you know, I, I say that to a lot of people. What was interesting is that in that agency, the you started at the bottom, obviously, but and they put you in each department. So you, you worked in the creative department, you chaperoned a photographer for months, you worked in the media buying department, every aspect of branding and marketing, they made sure you learned it. Um, and then eventually, as I progressed, I started working on FMCG brands. So, you know, had it not been for volunteering uh, and trying to learn my craft and understand my craft I, I would just never have got that break and that opportunity. I wanted to ask you about dealing with pressure because obviously to take on all of that so young for a lot I think for a lot of young people it's quite a it's quite a challenge and it's quite daunting to to be thrust into this position you were given and all these responsibilities but you seem to take it in your stride at the time how did you kind of process the pressure and all this responsibility you've been given? Do you know, I, I think by probably speaking to my parents and my father as often as I did, I I have three elder brothers and a sister. And um, there was, you know, I think it's fair to say there was very much a kind of um, bias attitude that despite having such a successful father that women, you know, they weren't really supposed to do that much. And, you know, Tessa would just get married and have children and that's what she would do. And my sister uh, got married very, very young and, and never really had a career. And I was so desperate to prove myself because I felt so um, pigeonholed and, uh, and I felt all their views were antiquated and and um, so totally biased uh, that I... I that was my biggest driver, I think. And also having my father there um, who was just, you know, he always used to say, you, you need to gamble and you need to take risks and without risk, you, you, there's nothing. And so I, I was never afraid of people. I always loved people. So I always knew that um, the Glaswegian charm might be able to get me out of a situation. But I, I can honestly say I was never afraid of of moving to Washington. And I think that now, actually, if my daughter said to me, mom, I'm going to live with this person. I don't really know her at all. And I'm going to work 
in uh, in a big company opposite the White House and get the metro line to work every day at 6 a.m. I'm not sure how I would feel about that. <laughs> I probably would tell them, mm, you're not doing that. Um, yeah. But at the time, you know, we lived very far out in the countryside in Glasgow and I was just so desperate to see the world. You know, I hadn't seen any of it. And I was, you know, I had such a passion for for knowledge and, and for uh, for learning that I just I just went with the flow. You've also described yourself as an eternal hustler and I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I like that. Tell me more about that, the, the eternal hustler. Do you know, I think that is my catchphrase and I use it to all my kids because I think life is about hustle. And I think anyone that pretends that it isn't is in the wrong game. I think that, you know, I always say that, you know, I think again, I stress about the Celtic roots and and, and coming from the background that I did. I think, you know, my mother was a fiery character and she um, she really supported my dad in every aspect of it, of his career. And so from her perspective, she always said to me, you know, Tess, you know the old expression which is cliched but if you put your mind to something you really can do it and I think I, I must say that sometimes having a Glaswegian accent didn't stand me in good stead so I developed to hustle all these different accents you know when I first started my business in in Glasgow um after I finished working in London I went back and set up an agency in Scotland and my father said to me at the time Tessa it's going to take you at least five years before you earn any money I was like, ah, dad, don't be daft. I will, you know, I'm going to do it sooner than that. He goes, I'm, I'm just telling you, it's going to take you at least five years before you turn a profit. I said, no, nah, no, nah, my hustle's harder than that. Anyway, he was absolutely right. It did take probably about six years before I started to make any money. Um, but one of the things I realized very on that, that you had to almost have multiple personalities to deal in the world because there are so many prejudices and so many different areas of business Um I think you have to have a strong upper lip, a very strong back. And because there's always somebody hungrier than you, wanting to undercut you, perhaps even doing a job better than you. So um, you almost have to hustle and just do what needs to be done to get the job done. Um, and I think that is a, it's, um, it's just a, it's a standard and a boundary that I think I've always set myself, you know. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be using that more often. When I read that eternal hustler, I thought I liked that. It's a, it's a good way to live. Yes, Theo, that's life. And, you know, even at my age, I, you know, I say to my young sons, guys, you know, come on, you've got to be, my, my son's a musician and he plays sax and he's great and he loves John Coltrane, you know. And he's like, mom, I'm really good. I said, Zach, you've got to hustle better than the greats. If you don't hustle better than the greats, you're never going to be better than the greats. So it's, you can apply it to everything in life. It's just, it's, it's determination, isn't it? It's with, with a bit of character, I think. You just mentioned earlier about leaving your job after three years. Tell me a bit about how you came to that decision you're in this agency you've got an amazing role you're absolutely crushing it so why then go do you know what I've had enough of London I'm going back to Scotland well I tell you it's a funny story I was at, in London even although I was working on FMCG brands um my passion was always uh like I said earlier creativity and design and fashion so I was kind of moonlighting at night time to do freelance PR work um, for young designers and creatives and photographers and things. Um, and I had this really great eclectic mix of friends and people that, that I used to thrive on. I just was so envious of their, their creativity. Um, and I, I met this girl whose father was big in retail. Um, she'll remain nameless. But anyway, we became really good friends and she was doing PR. And obviously my background was more branding and marketing. And she said, look, why don't we start an agency together in London? 
I was like, that's a great idea. So we spent ages and we put together a business plan and we came up with the name of the agency. Um, and she said, I just need to pass this through to my father to let him sign off. I was like, yep, sure, no problem. 50-50, you know, we'll hustle all the way. We'll do it. We both bring great expertise to the table. So this is going to work. Anyway, her father said that their name was far more important than mine. And so that my name couldn't be on the letterhead. It couldn't be in the company name. We would have to use her name. Let's call her X Associates. So instead of it being X and Tessa Associates, it was just going to be X Associates. And I said, well, if I'm 50% of the business and going to be 50% of contributing everything there is here, then why would I, what's the point of going into business for ourselves if my name's not going to be in the door? He said to me, ah, Tessa, well, the thing is, you know, you are, I hear you're very good and you're, you're obviously got a lot of uh, success behind you. He said, but my name is such a powerful name in the world of retail. I was so offended that he, I said, look, you can put your name first. I'm not egotistical. Put your name first and then add my name onto the end. Anyway, they refused to do it. I was so, perhaps my naivety, should I have taken it? Some might say, actually, you were too egotistical. Use his name. You still own 50% of the business. But at the time, I just felt that I had worked so hard to hustle to get to where I had wanted to be for such a young age. I just found it offensive. Anyway, I spoke to my dad and he said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, I just can't believe they've done that to me. It's just shocking. He said, well, there's no point in talking about it. Get off your ass and set up your own. And I went, oh, OK, right. And he said, where are you going to do it? And I said, well, you know, at that point in Scotland, there were no specialist agencies. There were PR and marketing agencies that would do everything. So you could go to them and work in construction or or fashion or medicine and they would do your PR, which in the big real world, that's just ridiculous because you have area of expertise. And, you know, if you're working in fashion, you know, it, but in Scotland was so behind. So I said, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all my expertise. I'm going to go back to Glasgow, set up a business and offer. Uh, it was at the time the first fashion lifestyle and entertainment agency in Scotland because we didn't have something like that then um and that's what I did and I went home and um I I thought I could be a bigger fish in a smaller pond I just felt that you know with the expertise and the experience I had to bring that back to Scotland and the contacts I had in London would stand me in better stead because you know London you know it's, it's a wonderful metropolis uh full of incredible competition and phenomenal talent um and I think it was the right decision because I really did miss my parents and my dad was just my right hand at you know all my advice and and helping me along the way and so that's what I did I went home and set up the business and um I never looked back I um I just I've I've always uh wanted to run my own agency it's some years have been great some years have been really tough um you have to accept that it's always a roller coaster and you're always on call you know, with your own business and you're always on call. And then I um, met my husband and he was the creative that I, I'd i never been. And so if we, I'd only, I'd only opened the business for a year and I met my husband and uh, I said to him, you, you, you should really come and live in Scotland and we'll, we'll build this business together because he was that, he was that perfect partner for me. I was the kind of sales front of house, if you like, um, individual and the strategist. I love writing. I've done a lot of writing over the years and copywriting and things. And he could, he was a musician, he could paint, he could draw, uh, he got into animation and we grew the business together.
You know, a lot of people in life say, oh, don't do business with friends or family because it never ends well and there's too much emotion involved. But clearly from your career and just even hearing Tess talk about you guys, you know, she she speaks of a family with so much love and, you know, how you guys have been married for so long. So the fact that you've managed to make your marriage and work together and be successful, what's the recipe? What's the What's the kind of like key to success in all of that? I'll be very honest with you. I think we we were a bit, I mean, talk about hustle and spontaneity. We met just before New Year's Eve. We met in a skiing holiday in a nightclub and we got engaged six weeks later and we got married six months later. And my husband's career, uh, at the time he was, believe it or not, he was a qualified clinical neuro psychologist and he was working in a brain trauma unit in Zurich part of university but his father was in the music business his father was a songwriter and a publisher um, and so Sasha had uh, always been an incredible musician Um, and we just we just met and we knew that we were meant to be together and I said to him look I've just set up this business why don't you come try live in Scotland if it doesn't work out I'll move to wherever you want to go to um but he did he came over and his parents were gutted because he he left this phenomenal job but in actual fact I was so taken by his his creativity that I just thought I knew instantly we would be the great compliment because he could do everything that I couldn't but the first two years Saul were the hardest part of our married life and I think because we got married so quickly and because of my perhaps old-fashioned and traditional values, it was so difficult. He the, the the Scottish linguistics was really hard for him. The Glaswegian language, you know, we we speak very fast, and um, you know, his first language was Italian, then German, and his English was brilliant. And um, but it used to bother him because he he wasn't as brilliant in his third language as he was in his own. Um, And my family were tricky and a lot of my friends were tricky and they couldn't understand why I'd met this guy and got married. You know how, you know, past remarkable everyone is now and everyone's got an opinion. Um, I think if we hadn't been married, we probably, there was, there was so many challenges and stresses in the first two years that if we'd been boyfriend and girlfriend, we would have went, you know what, hands up. I can't do this anymore. It's too much. Um, but because we were married um, and Tessie came along, uh, we we just worked through it all. And once we got over that first two years of a million different problems, we kind of felt that if we got through that, we could get through anything. And I think I have, um, I always said I would marry somebody that I greatly respected. I wouldn't say this to him, but probably he was smarter than me. <laughs> and I... <laughs> um, and uh, he was the first person that could keep me in line and could, we could have a good debate and sort me out, which is probably um, what, what I needed. And and I think because we complement each other, we don't fight for the same space. So, you know, we're very aware of our limits and our strengths and they're totally different. And they've been totally different throughout our whole business and married life, in a sense, which I think has been the secret. That and some old fashioned values about just working through it and getting on with it rather than giving up you know yeah for sure resilience I think is one thing that needs to be pushed more in our generation also I wanted to ask you one of the biggest challenges I think young entrepreneurs especially young people who want to go off and start their businesses is 
a finding a mentor and funding as well to actually say I'm going to go and get this business off the ground how do I do it it's quite a common these are two common themes I hear from a lot of young entrepreneurs so I wanted you to touch on those two things and how you overcame them and the type of advice you would give to young people in those in those positions look I think there are a lot of things out there I was very fortunate um I didn't obviously, you know, I when I went back to Scotland, I lived at home, so I didn't have, to, you know, I wasn't paying for any rent or anything. But um, I did apply to what was called at the time um, Eastern Bartonshire Council, and they had um, a business development grant that you had to submit a business plan for, which I did, um, and they helped you with your rent and your rates. Um, and then I applied. It was called Graduate into Business, and I. When I set up my business, one of the best pieces of advice my father gave me was don't set up the business, don't leave the job you're in until you have a client to take to your new to your first business because you can't sit and wait for the money. Um, so I was kind of like challenged in the sense of I had to create the brand, who did the logo, you know, I, I registered the domain name, we set up a website, I was still working in London and I had to win a bit of business before I could theoretically give it up and go home and work on it um so I did and actually the first account that I I won at the time was Dunkin Donuts would you believe <laughs> that's a good question <laughs> and they they because they weren't in Scotland but they loved me because of my American experience and I had lots of um FMCG experience with Burger King and Coca-Cola and at the time United Distillers which was Heineken and all these things um, and they were opening stores across Scotland and this huge production plant. Um, so that account was instrumental for me because I then went to the local government and applied for the Graduate into Business Scheme, which is a scheme to help young entrepreneurs and business startups, whereby they will pay 50% of the salary of the graduate for the first two years. So I effectively, because of Dunkin' Donuts, I could only employ one person, but I was desperate to employ two because of this grant that I could actually take on two account executives for the price of one because the local council were paying for the other half. Um, and that was really the break. And to be honest with you, I don't know how I would have done it had those opportunities not been there. But I do know that there are so many small business development grants and opportunities out there. You just have to get off and look for them because they are there. And I think you have to reap these opportunities because they are um, for the bottom line from a financial perspective you know I couldn't have done it but also there's they had mentors there and I would speak to people about actually you know running a set of an accounts in your first business there's just a million things it's overwhelming to think how do you actually where do you even be you think you know it all but in actual fact you don't um, so I'm very grateful to that and that is how I had uh, to a staff of two in my first year, which I thought was amazing. I was so excited at the time that I could have. I never told I never told anybody that I had grants. They just assumed that um, business was doing well. But actually, I had three different grants in place from the local council at the same time. But my background was very much, you know, branding and strategy. So I was able to deliver the results back to them. Here's what you gave me. Here is the growth trajectory of the business. Here's what we've achieved, and here's where we plan to go. Um, people always write a bit of an evaluation so it worked out well but so I suppose that the answer to your question is first of all you need to have a business plan you need to know what the journey is and you need to know where you want to go um and there 
this is why I keep saying to my kids, there are so much information out there now online uh, that just was not available um, and templates and YouTube videos. And, and so I think, I almost think there's no excuse for it now. You can really, you can get everything you want to know. Um, it depends how hungry you are to source it. So the ball's on your court. If you want to do it, go out and find the information and make it happen. In terms of building a team, I mean, in your case, obviously your partner then becomes creative of your business and almost your co-founder. And I think that's another also a, a tricky challenge is finding a co-founder or building a team around you to help you fulfill on a vision because it's almost impossible to take on as a, as a one-man band. What skills did you use in terms of recruiting the right people to help you see through the vision you had for, for Hartman House? Well, you know, I, you nailed it, actually, because in the beginning, Sasha and I didn't pay ourselves for, for quite a while. Um, you know, we would only withdraw expenses from the company. But the the amazing thing was in terms of pitching for business, because he's, you know, um, he's in-house, he would draw, create, edit, you know, he could put together a presentation and a visual that was first class, um, that looked as if we'd been doing it for years. Um and I always knew how to sell it. Um, and interestingly, he would never want to come to the sales pitches. You know, his view was, I do what I do. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in sales. I don't do that side. And he never did. And he never wanted to. And I never forced him to. So I think that's, again, another, it's the understanding of what your talents and where your strengths are and the ability to let your ego not come into play and to acknowledge that. But uh, I think that, recruiting going forward I'm a big believer in experience over academia um, and I think I've always tried to employ people if they've got a great CV it might interest me but I think experience is everything and I I think even more so now in the world in which we live in this field I'm not talking about the legal profession or accountancy and the professional services but you know in the creative sector I think experience is your CV you know that is what will stand in front for me of what you've done and what you've been able to achieve and that's the kind of people that I always hired people that had an incredible experience across creative services and and you know punched above their weight for their own ambitions um, and were hungry you know and never afraid of hard work, you know. I had um, a couple of, as as we grew up bigger, I, I kept on doing this graduate into business scheme and I, I got a graduate in, it must have been maybe maybe year three or four and uh, she was the top of her class. And um, one day uh, I had a little uh, receptionist in the front and the, all the phones were ringing. And I, I leant over to her and I went, the phone's ringing, answer the phone. I was doing something and she said to me, never forget it, she said to me, but I've got a degree. I don't answer the phones. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, really, 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 really? Here I was, like, probably on the floor, photocopying, getting ready for a pitch, putting in this big presentation document, and she's letting the phone ring out. <laughs> and I looked at her and I went, oh, dear. And I looked at her and I said, look, in this company, we're, we've always been a boutique agency. We've never, you know, we've never grown you know, hugely big. And that's always been because I wanted to be able to manage it and control it for the vision I had and also for the ability to have children. And I said to her, this is a boutique agency and we are a family and there is no hierarchy in here. If things need photocopied or teas need made, then we all make them. If the phones ring, we all answer them. If you need to run to the post office, whoever can do it, you run to the post office, even me. And I think that 
you know, there's a lot of, at that point, I felt there was a lot of academia that felt they were above things. And I think that's been addressed now over the years. I think that courses and education have taught people that having a degree is no longer enough, that, you know, you need to have a bit of personality and, and uh, common sense as well. Now I wanted to speak about the Scottish Fashion Awards. I mean, what you've done for your country is incredible because when you look at it, you know, the fact that you managed to put Scotland on the map and gain the attention of these international brands, you know, giving opportunities to designers, suppliers, people in textiles, you name it. And this is largely credited to the success of the Scottish Fashion Awards. And I know you're obviously the reason why it all came about. So I just wanted you to talk through, A, the inspiration of why you went down that route of setting up the Scottish Fashion Awards and B, the impact it's had on Scotland as a whole. One of the reasons I wanted to set it up was I, um, as the business grew, I launched many brands in Scotland. We launched Louis Vuitton in Scotland. We launched Ralph Lauren, uh, Prada, um, the Burberry stores, just so many luxury brands. Um, And during my experience with those brands, I kept coming across incredible Scottish talent that were working within the global fashion industry, but weren't positioned as Scottish. And I was always very envious, if you think back to British Vogue and Cool Britannia, they did such an incredible job of positioning London as the epicentre of British fashion, um, because they had this creative powerhouse of people that were just incredible, and they still are. Um, But their genius was always using that language about London and London Fashion Week and and the talent and Cool Britannia that it was everything was the epicenter and everything was homed there and I just thought to myself you know at the time I knew Rankin the photographer Scottish I knew Albert Watson phenomenal photographer who shot over 330 Vogue covers but yet no one knew he was Scottish. He's based out in New York. Um, All the designers, Harris, Tweed, who were producing for the biggest luxury brands in the world. And I was a wee bit galled by the fact that these people were working within the industry and yet not recognized as Scottish. So I put together a business plan. I drew up a strategy of how to create the event. I I trademarked the logo. And I thought the only way I'm going to be able to do this is if I get the endorsement and credibility of a good judging panel and I need one key player. Um, Otherwise, I I wouldn't do it. So I wrote to Alexandra Shulman, the editor of British Vogue at the time, Cut a long story short, I, I sent her my strategy and we, we mocked up a, a visual of the Scottish Fashion Awards and what we were trying to achieve. And I, I asked her if she would be a judge on my panel. And she never got back to me. And then I wrote to her again a couple of months later. She never got back to me. And then I wrote to her again about four months later. And she never got back to me. And then I started calling her office. And speaking to her assistant and saying, yes, it's me again. It's Tessa Hartman. Tessa Fraser was at the time. Um, you know, can I, um, can I, you know, can I talk to her? Can I come and see her? Eventually they laughed and they went, you have been so, you have persevered for such a long time. We're going to give you a meeting. I was like, wow, a meeting with a goddess, you know? So I went down to London, sat in front of her, gave her my pitch, which was probably about 18 months later from when the very first time that I first corresponded with her. Um, and I said to her, look, you know, you're the only person that can help me do this. You, you, need to, you need to bring me the credibility I need because I know that you know 
who this talent is. I know that you know the amount of Scots that are working in global fashion that need a voice. And I'm not taking away for the Britishness because I was very much proud of my British roots and celebrate the union, but I want to celebrate Scotland. So she looked at me and she looked at the proposal and she went, okay, fine, I'll do it. And I'll never forget it. I was like sitting in this Condé Nast office thinking, oh my God, she said yes, she said yes. So I got up and I left or whatever and I, I phoned Sasha and I came out. I was like, oh my God, you're not going to believe it. Anyway, that was a pivotal moment because once you had her name in the bag as a judge, I then reached out to all the other editors of the top glossies and people in industry and I said, I have Alexander Shulman as my key judge. I would really love you to join the panel. People like Hilary Alexander, who's a fashion editor of The Telegraph. Um, and I pulled together the panel and that was it. And then the task for me at the time was not to put my name to Scottish Fashion Awards. Scottish Fashion Awards was a client of the agency. So I very much positioned it as Scottish Fashion Awards is a brand that we work for and we do all the PR and we do the event organising. Um, so thanks to Scottish Fashion Awards, I was able to grow my business because people soon knew that Hartman was the agency behind Scottish Fashion Awards. They actually didn't know that we were Scottish Fashion Awards. And that almost came through through a mistake because I just didn't want to put anybody off and I wanted to, people to view Scottish Fashion Awards for an entity as it was. Um, and then the the legacy of all the years working in the business, I just put, started to put together a list of all the categories and the, and the people. And when you actually, when you put the word out there, it's incredible the amount of people that come back to you. Um, and that's why, you know, we were, I, I feel very proud that we, you know, my view is that the only way people can flourish and grow is to celebrate their talent. And for me, the event was always going to be a legacy event that we were providing a, a platform to all those people that maybe didn't have the budgets or the resources or the finance, whoever, at the beginning of their journey, the young designers, the the craftsmen, the, the, you know, the, the sewers, all these people, as well as those at the very top of their field. Um, and the legacy of the people that we've discovered is just, in, you know, it's just incredible. And I'm really pleased to say that not only that, we put so many people together, we would put like young designers together with big corporate brands. And the next thing you know, the people that we were honoring through the networking of fashion awards were able to actually start working for those global brands. And creatives were suddenly, you know, we had a girl who won um, creative of the year and uh, she became the visual merchandiser for Mark Jacobs Worldwide and she flew all over the world and created his windows and you know there's just so many incredible stories. Um, Harris Tweed Hebrides at the time went through a really difficult period and, and we reached out to all you know the different luxury brands and we knew that they were struggling but we knew that their craftsmanship was the best in the world. Um, but because, you know, at that particular time in the early kind of 2000s that they were just, um, they didn't have the network um, to reach out. Anyway, we gave them a heritage award and because of that heritage award and because of the event, they actually linked up with three different luxury brands who therefore started using them again. So their business kind of, you know, I'm not saying it was down to us, but, you know, the, the connections and the networking and that kind of, you know, links enabled them to really open up and you know they've never looked back they are they're producing for the biggest luxury brands in the world and um there's so many cashmere houses and artisan craftsmen um and i think also being scottish 
my biggest ambition was to change the conversation away from tartan and kilts and whiskey and to actually position Scotland as, you know, you, you meet someone and it's like, oh, please, you know, I, I mean, I am, a, you know, a comedian. I love a good joke. But if I have one more kilt and whiskey joke and short bread joke, it was just, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's just it's galling. It's galling. Um, and I think, you know, that's the ambition to change that conversation and, and have people recognise that, you know, there is many Scots out there changing the world in fashion and, and retail and industry as there are anything else. And, and and also the ability to say it's OK to celebrate being Scottish and British um, and that's OK. Um, and if I can help the next generation of young designers do that then um that was amazing for me and as i said at the same time um without it we probably wouldn't have grown our business the way we did i love that caveat as you said where the scottish fashion awards was your brand but the way you pitched it was almost like you detached yourself from it and that was actually a genius move because normally we all have you build something it's your baby you want to put your name to it and you want to be super proud of it. But actually, you when you look at it from like a strategic point of view, what you did was absolutely genius to go, well, pitch it this way, even though we're behind it. You know, people don't need to know that. And it was the catalyst of everything else that came. Oh, you're right. And, and it was probably, I mean, 2006, we did the first event. Um, it was probably how many years later you know I did eventually stand up and I would do a welcome speech but even at that because my view was the talent shall shine and the platform we would create videos to showcase you know all all the different projects that everyone was working on Um, it was very much about the talent on the night so people just thought that you know they assumed that I was like the event organizer welcoming and introducing the hostess not that I was (laughs) part of the brand so to speak um eventually they did because you couldn't deny that but um I I think that is I think the ego is very important to recognize where you need to step up and step down and I think a lot of people and a lot of young kids nowadays are you know they're so they're so egotistical that in actual fact if they step back and allowed their success to talk without and have people discover things rather than shove it in everyone's face, then I think they would succeed um, a lot more. You know, Uh, I always used to say that working hard in silence is the best way and let your success do the talking. Um, And I think that's a a cultural trait now that is dissipated a little um, because of social media and because of the look at me and look at my success and look at who I am. Whereas I think surprise discovery is more influential than anything actually touching on that it's quite it's quite interesting you saying that because let's say for example you look at your own daughter right Talia she's a a super successful entertainer great voice doing so so well she's so current and cool love everything she's doing so do you find yourself as a parent in a in a tricky situation where as you said sometimes you want to say to her look working in silence but then for her she almost needs that social media presence in order to to go so it's a I guess it's a tricky one it's a complete contradiction in terms and you know I I think that you know thank you for the compliments but Talia is she is nowhere near where she wants to be she's probably got I am probably the worst advocate for her because I'm brutal and honest and again you know, from day one, she said to me, you know, I want to leave school, I want to do this. And I said, well, Talia, you have to treat it as a business. And if you can't sustain yourself, I'm not funding it. 
<laughs> you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't a jolly. So I think that um, her business and particularly we have been led by the market. You know, I have had to adapt to that particular world of entertainment and celebrity whereby your position and your profile matters. You know, so I think you could probably, um, you know, separate the celebrity world and that's part of what they have to do in order to keep themselves up there. Um, but for business and industry, um, and you do to an extent, because let's face it, I mean, I've, I've carved a career out of celebrities. I've worked with so many of them. We do so much talent management now and and I've, I've crafted their their profile, if you like. Um, but I just think when you, I, I never really wanted to be in the forefront had I been a different person that actually wanted to be out in the front. I, I loved my husband. I had kids. I loved the business. But, you know, I would quite happy let someone else, you know, take a higher position or shine more than myself because for me the success was in the ability to deliver the project. Um, but, yes, now the world is different. You know, you've got social media and Instagram there and um, it is a business. And as long as she's driving and earning money and sustaining a lifestyle and funding her music career, and I'm sure people you know, think that we help her. And obviously we help her because she's our child. But, you know, she's had a business, um, a limited company since she was 17. Um, and we wouldn't let her go to London unless she was earning a little money to pay, you know, she was living in our house, obviously, but to pay her own way. So I think that what I've learned, I've hopefully passed on to the kids to know that, you know, there is no such thing as a free lunch and you have to, you, you can never stop. And this, the, the other thing that I think always amazes me is that kids want it overnight, you know, and that's something that, that in my generation, it's a lot, I mean, I'm nowhere near finished. You know, I hit my milestone, as you know, last October for my birthday. Um, but I think that kids now are not prepared to put in the time and they're not prepared to put in the hours and craft their skill. Um, and I think that um, that's a real problem. And I think that that leads to anxiety and depression and we talk about mental health all the time but I think it's because they set unrealistic expectations of their self. My favorite phrase was a high expectation is a premeditated resentment and what that actually means if you think about it and break it down that if you expect the world right and then you're expecting this big dream and then it doesn't happen and you're so gutted and then you become so resentful and so bitter that's because you created that high expectation. So if you don't create that high expectation and view everything as a plus, you know, um, then I think it's a much saner way to operate. And I think that you can change the game in so many ways if you operate that way rather than um, be delusional about pseudo success. And I think that's a problem with with Instagram and the world that these guys operate in, including my daughter, that it can be perceived that you're you're cracking it, but in actual fact, you're not. Um, and you need to have the wherewithal to hang tight, you know, put in the hours and go for the long-term route rather than a short, you know, fluster of fame. Yeah, no, I'm with you totally. That, And that's why I used that word earlier about resilience is, you know, the image on social media is one thing, but actually the hours and hours, you know, even the recent documentary, Michael Jordan, The Last Dance, you see that, right, where he became a global superstar without social media. And it's based off exactly what you said. It was literally hard work. I will outwork every single living being on this planet 
until I retire. And that's all he did. And in the end, when he hung up, when he hung up his boots, you know, the accolades and the achievements spoke for themselves because this guy just dedicated every living minute to being the best basketball player to ever live. And he and he achieved that through hard work. So I do agree that you can't replace that with Instagram posts and Absolutely. Absolutely. But it, it's it's difficult for kids to navigate because they're, you know, they're watching the socials. I, I mean, I'm a hypocrite because our whole business is digital now. So, you know, every brand that we work with, we're we're doing all their socials. Um but there, there's this, there's the advocacy of portraying constant positivity and constant success and kids are buying into that and every brand wants you to think of them as a happy place to be and we're doing so well and, you know, join our community and it's great and, you know, that unfortunately just isn't life um, and I think that we're seeing the downside of that now across uh the different demographics of kids and how they're struggling to navigate that because it's a very complex place to navigate. But like I said, and you said, if you strip it back and you realize and understand that this is a lifetime ambition and that, you know, you could be very lucky and achieve it earlier than you expected, but it is a lifetime commitment. It's not supposed to happen overnight. And sometimes when it does happen overnight, if you read all these stories and you've got everything you want by the age of 29, where do you go next? And that's where all the other influences come into play. And, you know, that's a whole other conversation, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. Moving forward, I wanted to speak, obviously, we've spoken about the Scottish Fashion Awards, and I guess that was probably one of the, the biggest reasons of you being on the Queen's birthday honours list in 2016 I mean yes. huge huge congratulations on that it's like one of, it's such a great achievement so I just kind of wanted to hear you know you've spoken about coming from humble beginnings how you took the the occasion and what an experience it was for you and your family do you know I have to say one of the most memorable days of my life um I was only my my biggest devastation was that my mum wasn't alive to see it and so that was always very sad for me. But um, my dad, God love him, he was still alive. So he was there. But I think, you know, my father got uh, an MBE about five years um, before I got mine. And we always had this constant joke because we've got a very glass region sense of humor. We knocked each other, you know, ah, I can do that. I can do that. And I said to him, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to get I'm going to get an honor one day. I'm, I'm going to get an honor. And he's like, yeah, well, you have to wait till you're my age to do that. And he was, I think, 75. Uh, and I went, oh, I'm, I'm going to get it. And he's like, yeah, well, we'll see. And we always used to banter with each other. Um, and I think what was amazing, all, albeit that I, everyone always visualizes what you'd like to achieve in your life. But with Scottish Fashion Awards, because I received the um, the honour for my contribution to fashion and textiles. And I, I always tell people, because I put everybody else first, because I gave this platform that was the opposite of, selfish it was selflessness because for me to have the talent shine was a big success to have these kids coming up to see the Christopher Keynes to see the Jonathan Saunders to see Rankin's portraits to you know the third uh, in line for Ralph Lauren Global was a Glaswegian this incredible fiery dynamic chap you know he won an industry award for me it was all about celebrating them so all of a sudden I get this letter. I got a, an honorary doctorate from um, Caledonian University in Glasgow, which was incredible because um, I, I was I went back to my brothers at the time and I went, you see, I told you, <laughs> that's the second degree I've got now. <laughs> huh? Okay. <laughs> Are you watching? Huh? Yeah. Um, 
because uh, there was a very big kind of camaraderie with all of that. But when when this letter came, um, it was kind of overwhelming, really. It was really humbling because I didn't think, obviously, I, I, I dreamed and, and hoped, but I never anticipated that it would come via that platform. And so just to be, you know, I am a royalist and I, I love everything that the royal family stand for bar a couple of PR issues but I think as a brand they've done a phenomenal job for Britain um, and so to, to to go to Buckingham Palace was just um, with my father and uh, took my two daughters and um, it was just my husband and I were just gobsmacked it was just um, unbelievable very very humbling and then then actually you go there and you see the real stars, the real people that deserve it, you know, that are, are work in charity and, and huge successes and, and various ventures. And you think, actually, who who am I? I'm, I'm nothing compared to all these people here. But it was presented by Prince William. And what was fascinating was, you know, he hands over your um, award and then he just started chatting. So obviously there's a chap that stands behind him and he whispers in his ear a little bit of, you know, the next person, blah, blah, blah. I could not believe how much he obviously remembered from what his private equity told him in his ear. So he's going, so uh, I understand you you set up Scottish Fashion Awards. And then he starts talking to me about the Fashion Awards and all the different people. And he said, you know, Catherine loves the the tweets of uh, Harris Tweed. And she's a very big fan of the, um, there was a silkwork manufacturing company down in the borders and Gala Shields that I did a lot of work with. And I was absolutely gobsmacked that he was handing out an award to what must have been maybe over 100 people in the day. And yet he could retain that amount of information on my little story for that little 10 minute episode. And it was just, I thought, my goodness, that that's a skill in itself. If you think about that, that's a skill in itself. You know, 100 people there and you've got five minutes. The next one is blah, blah, blah. And here's their background. Here's their, here's their story. Go for it. So, um. It was amazing. I'll, I'll, um, the pictures are framed. They're in the house. They're everywhere. So, um, yeah, I, I'm very proud of that. It's, it's very cool. And also, is it true that you're not allowed to take pictures once you go inside? I heard there's like a strict no phone policy. That's right. Yes, absolutely. And um, I mean, even, even Tessie and, and Dahlia, they were like, oh, let's just sneak our phone in. I was like, you know what? I've been chucked out of many places, but I would not like to be chucked out of Buckingham Palace. So let's not try that, shall we? But they were offering, yeah, let's just sneak it in our pocket. But no, we didn't do that. You get photographed outside in the courtyard. Um, and so they take the official photographs there. Uh, and there's quite a lot. And then they send you photographs of you actually receiving your award from Prince William because they've got photographers their own in-house photographers all over um all over the, the the beautiful room that it was taking place in so um no iPhones I'm afraid <laughs> to catch the ceremony or William whispering in my ear didn't grab that one <laughs> maybe next time maybe next time yeah <laughs> and also um going back to you mentioned the university the Glaswegian University I know you were also doing master classes around helping the next generation. So tell me a bit about that, your involvement in that and the kind of work you've been doing with, with well, the youth. Well, basically the the lady, the principal uh, of Caledon University um, is a lady called Professor Pamela Gillis. And she, for me, she is a fire starter, the most dynamic woman you would ever come across. And she also set up the British School of Fashion in London. Um, and she set up uh, a degree courses um, to do uh, a master 
Master in Luxury Branding. Um, and her ethos to these master's de- courses were to actually work with industry. And so the lecturers there come from Ralph Lauren or Louis Vuitton or Burberry or Pringle or and all the all the amazing brands. And and her legacy was that industry and experience, a bit a bit like mine, is the only way you're going to educate the next generation. Um, and so part of the uh, the process of receiving an honorary doctorate is that you give something back. Um, and so they encourage you to, to, I mean, I hate the word masterclass because I don't feel any of us are masters. We're just all trying to craft our way. Um, but I think if I can give some time to to people trying to set up their business or trying to forge their careers and are looking for direction um, within that world, then I'm more than happy to do that because I, I think of all the people that have influenced me and shaped my career um, along the way. And I, I wouldn't be here if I didn't have the mentors that I had, the, the lady who I still speak to today, actually, um, that I stayed with in Washington, D.C., uh, was a great mentor of mine. And I, I I learned from her and reaped as much knowledge as I could. Um, and I think that's really important to be able to to, to share that knowledge. Um, and it's amazing what a conversation can do that beats two years worth of reading books. You know, I mean, for me, that is a, that that's where it's at, that knowledge, you know. And also you've delivered an abundance of speeches. I mean, I know on various subjects in fashion, one of the topics I know you've spoken about before is obviously equality in the workplace. And as you know, I mean, the world at the moment, everything's kind of erupted finally, you know, with the whole George Floyd incident in America, which has now obviously pushed racism and social injustices and equalities to the forefront of conversation and debate. How have you, over your career, kind of navigated the the conversation of equality within the workplace, especially for BAME candidates, because they seem to face the hardest challenges, and especially, I think, in, in the fashion, entertainment and lifestyle industry. It's probably the hardest sector for them. How have you kind of seen that play out? And what's your view on how, we, how that could be, you know, improved? You know, I, I think that um, no one can deny that it is that a catastrophic level now and it's very emotional and it's very unfair Um, and I think there's still an awful lot of complacency around. I don't think there's enough action. I think it's coming Um, but I think as an employer um, I've always been I suppose you know again coming from uh, Glaswegian roots let me take you back. My father was Protestant, my mother was Catholic and I married I married um, Sasha, who's Jewish, and so there's we we all face different issues in our lives um, about bias and all these different things. Um, it's the way I was fortunately brought up that you know race, skin color was never was never came into question in my household. Um, I think education is key, and I don't think that's the same for an awful lot of people. I think people, you know, it's that historical reference of having bias. And how do you actually, because that's the only way you're going to break the line, isn't it? It's education and it's teaching kids that we're all the same and we're all exactly alike. But if that's not being done in the house, you know, we can talk about what governments are doing, but I, I feel very passionate that 
parents have more important role to play in this than politicians because we are educating our children. And unless we change our manners and our opinions and our emotions um, and to create that, have these conversations about life and equality in our home, how can we expect it to play out in industry and in the community? Um, So I think that you know, we have to have big discussions around how we actually do that. And industry needs to set up. Industry is sitting up. Um, Is it sitting up enough? Not yet. I think they are uh, definitely, particularly in fashion, you know, the the, uh, Confederation of Designers in America announced different opportunities and different programs now, which is amazing. And what this, uh, you know, George Floyd situation dreadful situation has taught us this that you know we cannot sit back now we have to take action and we have to improve and we have to implement and we have to discuss and people are afraid to discuss and I think that conversations needs to happen that that you know perhaps previously would have been awkward and actually just a bit of honesty and communication with the various um, communities to say how do you want us to fix this how can we fix how can we come together and fix it I think it's going to take a long time but I think you know we're on the path of recovery um and um we've just got to you know we've got to keep hustling for that as well and I think you know know, we have conversations about it in our house uh, all the time my kids are asking me questions and um you know I've seen it I'll give you an example I hired uh this incredible presenter called Jean Johansson, um, to be the host of Scottish Fashion Awards. She's I've known her for a long time. Um, she was a journalist. She was a TV presenter. She came up doing the ranks, I think, in a BBC programme down in London. She lives back in Glasgow, born and bred. Her mother and sister live in Scotland, but she's black. She's a wonderful, hugely talented giller. And I made her the host of the Scottish Fashion Awards in maybe 2015, I think, 2015 or 2016, because she was, she was fantastic. I can honestly tell you that after the event, of which she did a phenomenal job, it was in London, we had loads of press, we had loads of celebrities there, two different people came up to me and said at the end of the night, you know, passing comments, oh, great night, Tessa, great night, what a show, fantastic show. I had loads of people there, Pam Hogg was there, all these people said, but I can't believe you picked her to be your presenter. I actually thought, no. <laughs> I am have been known to swear Saul in my time. I do use profanity. Don't, don't we all? <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to deny that, as I'm sure my children will testify, right? And I couldn't help myself. I actually said to him, well, you can go and beep yourself and leave this function right now. And I was absolutely horrified. But you know what? Why I was so shocked? Because... It was just so out of the blue and it was from someone who was so unexpected. So, And I thought, the fact that they had... Now, here's what I was offended at. What part of them thought it was okay to speak like that to me in a public place at my event? Did they think that I felt that way? Did they think, well, how could they have? You know, but the, their audacity and their shamelessness in actually saying it at the event that is what we're fighting with. It's the the silent ones, the ones that sit back and actually are aggravators that are more dangerous than anything. And these are the people that I think we need to seek out. 
And the only way we can do that, you're not going to change them, Saul. You're not going to change. There's a, there, there is a generation there that you're not going to change their values. And I think we're going to kid ourselves on if we think we can change that generation because they've been brought up that way and their bias and racism is off the scale. Our job as parents and now is to make sure it doesn't continue and to re-educate the next generation that we're all exactly the same. But that for me, you know, that was a few years ago. He obviously didn't think it was any big issue. Uh, I've never spoken to him again. I did think about actually writing to him. And then I do have a policy that I discussed with my husband that when stuff like that happens sometimes, and maybe it was a mistake on my part, I don't feel you can engage sometimes with people that behave like that because my response is not going to change their opinion. It's too far ingrained into their mind. Um, but certainly, I put it to you like this, he won't ever be back at one of my events, ever. <laughs> what do you do? It's um, it's a big, big challenge, Saul. And um, I just hope that uh, industry and, and parents and politicians get it right this time. And I love that you told that story because I've had racism since I was in school all the way up until now. And I said, the difference is when I was in school, it was it was overt. It was people shouting at you, people calling you the N word. And but then as I got older, I started to realize, ah, oh, this is it's different. You know, when you go into the working world, because now it's not people shouting in your face and screaming stuff. It's the subtleties and the things people do to stop you from getting to certain places or doing certain things. For me, as you said, is that's the worrying part of the quiet ones. The ones that are shouting out are almost better because at least you can say, we know who you are, that's fine. But the quiet ones are more dangerous because they ultimately, you don't know what they're, you don't know what they're up to and what blocks they're putting in place to stop people getting where they need to be. So yeah, so it's, it's definitely a tough conversation that we, the dialogue needs to continue for sure. But, you know, it's it's like I said, you know, my husband is Jewish and um, the, the, some of the situations we've faced over the years, uh, even in Glasgow, if you, if you break it down to um, religious bigotry, you know, right now, even in Scotland, you've got Rangers and Celtic. I mean, how is that possible that in 2020, you've still got football teams that are so opposed to each other because of their religious beliefs? One is Catholic, one is Protestant. Uh, you know, it's it's everywhere. These these um, small-minded, uh, almost parochial, and I'm sure I'm going to get shot for saying this, but we live in a global society. We have a global cultural identity, and things need to change more. Um, and I, I just hope that I think I actually have a lot of faith in the generation now, like my kids and probably your age group. I think that you guys are you're you are going to deliver um, the next level of of positive cultural identity that needs to be out there. My generation and the older generation, it's not going to happen. They're not going to change. I think you've already done a fantastic job in terms of your own children. I hope, as you said about parenting, that more parents look at it and go, actually, okay, I can't have an effect on what's going on right now. But what I can do is start in my own home and make sure that my kids are, you know, they understand what's going on, what's right and what's wrong. And then hopefully in in the next de- in the next two decades, we'll start to see more of a change and, you know, more of a, a, a uniform, united world where colour isn't, you know, colour isn't an issue anymore. 
Um, I just wanted to touch on, lastly, how you've been coping in lockdown and what effect it's had on your business, if any. I think, first of all, for anyone to say they've not been affected business-wise um, is lying. It would be impossible not to be affected by the massive change in economies and just shift in, uh, in in every part of our daily life. Um, I'm very fortunate in that we opened an office here. Um, so I've got a lot of corporate clients, which interestingly, um, I only picked up in the last five years. And thank goodness I did, because obviously fashion has um, been hit really badly. And so the first thing to go in the world of fashion and retail is, is marketing and PR. So a lot of the London clients that I have have just, uh, you know, almost immediately, you know, just stopped working with us, um, pressed the pause button. Um, uh, and so, yes, absolutely, it's affected us. But again, um, it gets back to that being the ever hustler. You know, I sat down, I've still got a team in Glasgow, a very small team in Glasgow. Um, and I've got a couple of graphic designers here and Sasha and I are here and I sat down and I said you know we've been here before we've been in business now 25 years there's you know recessions come and go and you have to navigate your way out of it and how do you do that and you have to reinvent the wheel and you have to think of of things that you didn't have to do and you know your complacency of having these great retained clients for a few years and thinking everything's great and again one thing my father always said to me you can never rest on your laurels um so for us, um, we've actually been working very hard to to reinvent our wheel and think about ways of what we're going to do. What's our next five year plan um, and how are we, you know, uh, the economy's uh, very, very challenged. I think our way of life. Um, I, I did an interview for the Institute of Directors just last week talking about um, the future of business travel. Um, and I'm. I'm I'm very uh, very much uh, in you know supporting a green economy, um, uh, and retail obviously is at the heart of that. And I think we have suddenly all realised that we can function without travelling on a plane and without meeting people in person. And I think the ramifications of that, all the way down to the supply chain, all the way down to the retailer, what I wouldn't want to happen, Saul, is that. The shops are opening now, travel starts again, and we just get back to where we were. I don't think that can happen for our planet and for our sanity and our morality. I think that we have a responsibility to realise, you know, what have we learned through this and to analyse what we've learned and how we're going to play out in the future. And we don't want to go back to to mass market retailing and manufacturing in India and, uh, you know, uh, seeing the way industry affects our planet. We just can't do that. Um, and so I've tried to play this with my, particularly with my children as, you know, everything happens for a reason and what can we learn now? How do we want to live the rest of our lives? And how are we going to, you know, I'm probably, I'm so thankful um, to be healthy uh, and to be with my family, um, and I'm very gracious about that, that I probably even learned myself not to be um, as uh, precious about particular material things or wants and lives and um, perhaps even to calm down a bit and realise how lucky we are because there's an awful lot of people out there struggling. And one of the things we did actually I am a bit of a workaholic, as Tessie will have told you. And about three months ago, it was um, the end of March when when 
I would say probably about 55% of our business just stopped. And I've, I've got a, a very much a strong routine. You know, I get up every day and I do my things and I still do my bits with the kids and stuff. But, I, you know, I, I work a lot of hours. And suddenly I found myself with all these hours because, you know, the fashion business had just stopped. And so I then sort of started filing and going over all my accounts and doing all the stuff that you never get time to do. And then I did all that. I thought, what am I going to do? And for the first time in my life, I felt, myself get a bit down and I am always glass half full kind of person I don't allow anybody to have a sad face I always will try and make them laugh or put on some music or whatever anyway I thought right okay I need to I need a client so I decided I phoned up the hospice here I knew the lady I've met her loads of different things and I said look I've been looking at your brand for about five years now and it's an incredible brand and you're doing a great job but I really think you need a brand overhaul and she said, well, Tessa, that would be lovely. But we have just, we're in a terrible predicament because we've got no income. All our all our hospice shops have closed because we're not allowed to. And we were pulling in 20 grand a week on the retail side, which was paying for the hospice, which is free to everyone in the island. I said, okay, well, I'm go- I will work for you for nothing. Uh, you will be my new account. Um, and she went, you're kidding. And I was like, no, no. I said, look, you know, I, I need to do things. Um, I've, I've lost 50% of my business and I'm in a fortunate position that I can keep going. Um, and I love working. So I want to give it back to you. So we I basically, we prepared a, a proposal for her. We, we did Zoom calls. We sat down, we, we gave her a big presentation um, and we've been overhauling our brand and doing a lot of work for her in the past three months. And I can honestly tell you, I love it. And I just feel like um, if everybody were to do a bit of that, if every word we, you know, now is the time for giving back. Um, and interestingly, uh, again, um, you know, a lot of people have come to me and here and said, oh, God, I saw you did all that stuff for hospice. That's great. Would you want to have a look at our job over here? Now, that wasn't the intention. My intention was I, I was, you know, a bit emotional and just felt that the world was in such a precarious place that I had to give something back but it's been a joy for me and it's also been an education for me to understand the business model that is a hospice how much it costs to run what they actually have to do every day how it's free to the community how much money they need to survive every day um and if I can just you know myself and my husband can just contribute that little bit back and give it back I think that's obviously going to go a long way. And if everybody could just do that with the extra time they have, get off their social media and actually think, who in my community needs a bit of help? You know, it's like a bit like writing a book. You take a page a day, mate, and you've done it in a year, um, if you can be bothered. But it's the same thing, you know, a couple of hours every week to someone that is less fortunate than yourself can go a long way. And I think that's, that's ha- needs to happen in society in order for us to recover because I think it's going to take a very long time, you know, for for lots of charities and lots of non-profit organisations. I couldn't agree with you more about investing, and I've actually done the same during lockdown. Is just use my resources, my contacts, and said, look, what can I do to give back? That time for them probably means the world. A brand overhaul that would have cost them thousands and thousands and thousands. You come along and say, hey. We'll do it for free. It's it's almost unheard of. 
It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, as I said, and I'm so glad that you said yes. And the title of the podcast is Can I Get a Picture? And our closing question for all our guests is, who is the one person that inspires you that you'd love to have your picture taken with and why? Oh, gosh, you threw that one on <laughs> me, Saul. <laughs> I have so many. Probably most of them in fashion I've already done because that was another goal of mine to meet all these great creatives and um, inspiring, dynamic people. I would say I'm going to go with my emotion and I would actually love to meet the Queen. You're going to laugh. It's not. I've, I've done so many uh, business profile people over the years, people in industry and business that have shaped you know, my, my life and how I've learned from them. But I just look at that woman and her resilience and uh, I would just love to sit down and have a cup of tea with her and, and chat to her. Um, I think that uh, her dedication to the country and, and, and the emotional roller coaster of going through uh, the turmoil in British history, the way she's done and navigated, just must be a story that will probably never be told. So I would love to have a cup of tea with her and actually find out what she really thinks. And and I'm fascinated by the fact that you know she has tea weekly with the current Prime Minister and how many different uh, parties that she's had to listen to and just to navigate that that incredible. Uh, bubble and to be the face of of the monarchy is just it's a job that I don't think anyone would want you know you're born into it but people always slag off but I always say to people if you had the choice would you choose to do that and I don't think I would so um I I just I I have huge respect for her so I would love to stand with the uh, Betty <laughs> and have my photograph taken I have my photograph taken. I should have knocked on her door when I was there in Buckingham Palace, but don't think she was in. <laughs> yeah, can I have a snap? <laughs> yeah, no, she, she's just, she's a legend. And uh, it was her birthday as well this week, so she's probably quite appropriate for me, I think. And I, I'm a I'm, I'm a unionist at heart. I, one of the other things I, I uh, got a lot of trouble for was um, during the time of the Scottish independence. And I did a lot of... Um, political programs and a lot of writing, uh, political writing about my thoughts on Scotland being part of the union. And I'm, I'm still, I still hope that, uh, that that'll be the case. Uh, you know, I'm very passionate about um, Scotland remaining in the union. So I, I, that's another thing that I think is, uh, it's not going to go away. So we'll just have to keep fighting that battle as well. Thanks again to Tessa for taking the time to chat with me. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Can I Get a Picture Pod, and we'll be back again next week with another episode. 